Psalm 34 says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears towards their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Casey. I'm one of the pastors here, um, and we uh, we're not going for a new vibe. Um, we're not we're not going for emo church. Um, even though Ryan, he, he, he might have started something new for us last week. Uh, we just, the light shorted out, which is better than the air conditioner shorting out. Um, and so uh, this is uh, how we're going to do church. Um, and so welcome. I can't see you. I'm assuming that I hear you. Um, I'm assuming you're out there. Uh, my name's Casey. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, here at Free City, uh, we exist to extend the glory of God uh, by by making disciples through the power of the gospel. And what that means is that everything we do, we want to have um, a pointer to the gospel. Meaning that if we were going to say it this way, like if you want to understand what the Bible's about, the whole Bible is really pointing in various ways to get us to Jesus that we might understand this incredible gift that's offered to us. And so one way to say that, all of Scripture is about Jesus. It's about the unfolding of the gospel. And we see that really, really clear in the Psalms. And so the Psalms pre-Jesus, um, I mean, some of them way pre-Jesus, uh, but yet they're, they're, they're dealing with problems that we face uh, every day. They're dealing with problems that we face in this lifetime of loss and brokenness. Um, and here we see words like brokenhearted, crushed spirit, and yet these promises of that God is near to those people. And what we have right here in Psalms 34 is we have David telling us a story and inviting us into the story of his life that we might share, that we might be a part of it. And so when we look at this, like, I just want to, we respond to stories. Like, I, I actually think it's impossible for us to understand things without a narrative surrounding it. Like, if you've ever worked with little kids and teaching them, like, you tell stories to help unpack things. You know, some of the books that, uh, that I read uh, with my oldest daughter, Quinn, The Wingfeather Saga, it came out of an article that I was reading, uh, Rosario Butterfield, and she was talking, she's a brilliant, brilliant lady. And she was talking like how we explain real virtue to to kids. And she said, if we were trying to explain courage to children, you wouldn't like unpack the word, you know, courage of how it is in its derivative form and how it came up in epitology. You wouldn't do that. You would expose them to something courageous. 
And then she mentioned the wing feather saga. And so we read this whole thing and it started off with me reading to her, even though she's an excellent reader. And then there was a snow day because we had lots of those and she crushed the book and it was done. And then I was playing catch up forevermore. But I love to see her moved by story. I mean, when I'm reading it, like I'm crying and like, there's all these moments where like my kids are like, Hey, are you okay? I'm like, no man, it's beautiful. You know, I mean, we're moved by it. There's something in our hearts that resonate, like we relate to one another, even though their circumstances might be different. It's almost like there's this base emotion at the bottom of all humanity that at the very, very bottom of it, there's a deep, deep need for relationship. And because we're Christians, we know that that's relationship with God and relationship with others. There's this deep, deep need there. And there's also a longing. There's just a longing. There's a sense that this isn't right. There's something wrong. Even in the moments when life is good, there's a sense of I'm missing something. And through story, we we relate to that. Um, Yesterday, we went to see the Lion King, uh, real animals. I mean, not real, real animals. They look real. And man, just the storyline of the Lion King. I mean, if you don't cry during the Lion King, there's something wrong with you. You know, this, this brokenness of, man, I messed up. I made a mistake. The tragedy of life fell upon me. And Simba loses his father. And, I mean, everybody wants a dad with that voice. You know, I mean, Simba. I mean, I mean everybody wants that. But this caring father, this loss, this shame that runs him away, trying to start a new life to escape, and yet the responsibility pulling back. And the thing that always gets me the most, I mean, all that stuff's fine, but is when people join in to say, I will fight for you and with you. I mean, it's Pumbaa and whatever the other guy's name is. But I mean, but, and that's totally unrealistic. But, but I mean, there's something drawing that draws us in. In that movie, they had, a, the re, apparently they're remaking all um, the cartoons of my childhood. And so Mulan, they're remaking that. Oh, man. Like, she, wow. I mean, they toughened her up. I can't wait to see. I cried during that, too. Um, But there's something that pulls us in. And so this song, this story, this invitation, it has a setting. Matter of fact, if you look at your Bibles, I know know you can't read them, but if you use your phone to read them, um, you'll notice the superscript. Like, look at this. Read that together. Not together. I don't want you to read out loud. Um, Let me read it for you. And so depending on what Bible, the superscript that comes along with this, it says, Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. And so that's, like, that's a mouthful. And it's not even really, really clear, but it sets it in, in, uh, in one place in 1 Samuel 21. This is one of 14 psalms. Two of them relate to this experience. One of 14 psalms that have this superscript that tell us the setting that the psalm came out of. And the setting of this is when David is running for his life. David wasn't king yet. David was, uh, he had already killed Goliath and was becoming famous and was leading men. But what had happened, he was still kind of a page to King Saul. And King Saul was starting to lose his sanity and really jealousy was driving him mad. And so he's running now because King Saul had tried to kill him three times with a spear. And then he took out a group of assassins and put it up on his head. And so, I mean, that's like a bad day. And so he's running for his life. He doesn't have anyone. He doesn't have his men with him. He doesn't have any weapons. He gets to the city of Nod and he goes to the temple and he meets with the priest. And the priest is kind of nervous. Why are you here without anyone? And he lies to him. He says, man, I'm on a secret mission. I mean, it's kind of like, I am on a secret mission. I'm running for my life. He doesn't have a weapon. And so he asked if there's any weapons. And like, well, we got Goliath's sword. And he's like, well, yeah, I've used that before. I mean, I'll take it. And so he takes Goliath's sword. And so Goliath was a big dude. So it might have looked silly with him. But he takes Goliath's sword. And then he runs to the city of Gath. Gath was one of uh, five cities, major cities of the Philistines. Gath was Goliath's hometown. So everyone knew who David was. Everyone hated David and everyone knew whose sword he was carrying. So the report of him gets around the city, and that's David. 
That's David who humiliated our giant that led to the slaughter of our army. That's David. And he's walking around our city with Goliath's sword. So they take uh, David, they arrest him, and then he suddenly he's before their king. And so what does he do? I mean, the, the text, if you look at First, First Samuel uh, chapter 21, it, it unpacks it. It says he acts crazy. Like what he does, he acts crazy. He kind of scratches at the doors, you know, and then he kind of, he spits on his beard and lets it run. And he didn't say crazy eyes, but you have to have crazy eyes to sell that sort of thing. And so he, he just acts crazy. And, and the king of Gath, he looks at him and he says this. He's like, do I not, I have plenty of crazy around here. I don't need more crazy. Let that dude go. And he looks back at this time of being rested, and there's two psalms that relate to it. You know, Psalms 56 uh, describes his prayer while he's in prison there, not knowing if he's going to live or die. And then Psalms 34 is the joyful storytelling, God saved me. I was in a horrible, horrible place, and, and God saved me. And so Psalms 34, it's a... It's a storytelling song. And so we're going to look at this. Like, you know, actually, even if you look at it, it's one of the, the psalms that's an acrostic, which not a lot of them are. This is actually a failed acrostic. Um, they didn't know what to do with the letter wa, um, which, I mean, we could relate to that. I mean, if you were doing an acrostic, which means every line starts with the next letter of the alphabet, when you get to letters like X, you know, Z, Q, I mean, Z rocks, zebras quietly just doesn't fit the theme very well. And so you kind of run out of ideas. So it's actually in a failed acrostic, but like, the question would be, why did he do an acrostic? And I don't know. I mean, maybe the haiku didn't work out. I don't know why he did it. Maybe he wanted to do it so that you might remember the elements of the story and recall them quickly so you might be reminded of God's faithfulness and a central promise. A central promise. And the central promise is this. If you belong to Jesus, if you belong to God, he will rescue you. It may not be bodily, but one day it'll be complete. We're going to look at this text really just under um, two big headings. And it's really the action of the text where David tells. We just get his story. We don't get all the elements, but we get more than you might see on a first reading. He just tells us the story. He knows there's strength in telling our story. And we're going to use that and kind of step out and make this kind of Galatians 6 principle that I believe there is strength, like healing power in telling our story to one another and to God. And so he tells the story. And then the second is he teaches. David tells, David teaches. Let me pray for us and we'll, we'll get in into this. Um, Father, Lord, I pray that um, as we just hear David's story, Lord, I pray that we would see elements of his story in us. Lord, I pray that we would relate to the fear, the uncertainty, the lack of resources. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would relate to um, the idea of, man, sometimes we wonder where God is. But Lord, I pray that the, the promise that is found here that God loves to save his people. And Lord, we always want to, God, we want to attribute that to bodily things. That he always just, he's going to save my life the way I want him to save it right here. But you have come to save something far more great. And Lord, sometimes we look at that and we see it as less valuable because it feels distant from our immediate needs. But Lord, I pray that the truth of that promise that you have come to rescue your people. And when we cry out, you hear and you see and you respond and you are able. Lord, I pray that that would rest deep. And Lord, I, I pray that you would help us engage with the text. I pray that the Holy Spirit would uh, be in our soul and would sort it out. And words from the text would resonate and they would go deep. And Lord, with the back doors open, so many distractions, I pray that you would help center us. And Lord, anything that I say is just not helpful. I pray it be forgotten. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would be lifted high. And we would walk away and the Holy Spirit would do his job, which is to make Jesus shine loudly. That we would see him. Um, and we'd find hope. God, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So let's get started. Uh, as we look at verses one through seven, what we see is just the story. David tells a story. And the proposition that I'm going to make is there is power in sharing your story. Power for you uh, in, in getting away from shame that's hanging upon you and understanding. But there's also power for others to hear present day story of struggle. And so in this story, it is a victorious story of like, man, you, can't, you won't believe what God did. But it's also rotted with struggle. Like there's difficulty and struggle. And, and so there's so many things that we see. And before you like, like sometimes I think we think about like storytelling songs and we think they're kind of hokey. And that's what you're thinking right now. And you're wrong. The greatest songs are storytelling songs. And I'm going to prove it to you. And so like the greatest songs are storytelling songs like Thriller. Thriller, Michael Jackson, Young Love, running through the city, saw a movie in my red members-only jacket, collar popped. There's no collar on a members-only jacket, but it's still popped. Running through the city, Young Love gets all messed up because why? He turns into a zombie. Like, you want to avoid that in Young Love. It is this story. That's kept, I, was, I was like four or five years old, and my babysitter uh, showed us that on MTV. MTV was before YouTube. You wanted to watch a music video. You had to wait for it on MTV, on TV. She showed it to us. Like, it came on. I was scared out of my mind. Scared out of my mind. But he's telling a story. I mean, if you can't relate to not wanting to turn into a zombie, you are in the wrong era. And so you have, first, Michael Jackson. Then you have Poison. Every rose has its thorn. If this doesn't relate to your heart, like, like, listen to some of these lines. Like, although we both lie close together, we feel miles apart. There is not a married dude on this planet that hasn't had that contemplation in his mind. Like, man, we're close, but it feels like something's wrong. And so then it unpacks what might be wrong. It says this, was it something I said or something I did? Did the words not come out right? Like, there is not a married guy that hasn't been like, oh, I must have done something wrong. Poison is unpacking, like, your soul to you. And then it goes on. It's like, you know, though I tried not to hurt you, though I tried. And then, you know, but I guess that's why every rose has it. I don't sing. Um, But, man, it's unpacking this story that we find ourselves in. And so we have some of the greatest songs of our lives unpacked right here that are storytelling songs that we relate to. I mean, we have Michael Jackson, we have Poison, and we have Carmen. And Carmen, a lot of you guys don't know who Carmen is. Carmen was um, a white guy that kind of hit big in contemporary Christian music. He wore a tuxedo and he kind of talk rapped. Um, and almost every one of his songs was a storytelling song, like The Champion, uh, that was a big one. Uh, Lazarus come forth, like just walks you through the passage and you hear Lazarus. I mean, it comes forth, draws you in. And then witch's invitation. Oh, wow. That'll freak you out right there. Witch's invitation. I tried to use that in like evangelism. Like I'd bring my friends over. We'd bring out the tape cassette before CDs. You don't know what those are. We'd put it in. We'd listen to it. And it kind of unfold. And it talks about himself. Uh, Carmen actually did that a lot. Talk about himself. And it talked about himself where uh, it kind of unpacks it. He gets this invitation from Isaac, who was a witch. who was like, hey, man of God, come to my house. Let's see who's really tough. And so he goes. Wasn't wearing a tuxedo, but I still like to envision him with a tuxedo on and he walks out and it's the story that goes back and forth and so he is in isaac's house and at the end of the song you know i'm looking at my friend with wide eyes like huh which side do you want to be on you know i mean it didn't really work but it's a story and so david like his story starts off with this invitation Like there's some elements I want you to see in the story. There's a lot of details you don't see, but he's trying to draw you in. And so the first, let me just kind of tell you the five things I want you to see. We see an invite. Like he's inviting. This actually relates to all of us. And if you hear it and if you listen and you join and we praise together, we all benefit more. And then it goes on to this intent. Like he tells us why he's doing the story, why he's telling us a story. And then he goes and he says who it's for. And so we have invite, intent. We have who. And then he describes, this is what you can expect when you share your story with God's people and with God. And then he says even more, this is how you get the results. And so let's just 
look at these elements. And so first, this invite. Like we could ask the question, why does David invite us in? And it answers in verse 3, because sharing our story magnifies God more. It increases our joy. It increases our confidence in God. It builds faith. And like telling the real story, like not telling the story where you held out and you were the hero all the time, like, I know God's going to come through. Telling the story where you're like, man, I was talking to God. I was like, man, you lied. You said that if I did this, like that was a promise, you lied. And then letting that unfold where God's promises do come true. Like, look at verse 3. It says, oh, magnify the Lord with me. That's an invitation. It's telling us how to come in. I want you to join with me. Participate in my story that you might magnify God with me. And then it says, and let us exalt his name together. David's inviting us into his story of praise. Like he's telling us something that we actually already know. Like our delight and our joy grows when we have people with us who join in. And that doesn't just apply to like worshiping together. You know, like there's a, I just, I believe there's a special manifestation of God's presence when we come together and we worship together. I mean, if you think about it, when we sing together, it is the only time that we are all saying the same promises of God, of who he is or what he's done for us or what he's doing. Like if you look at the songs that we do, we try to rest right there. Songs that talk about who God is and what he's done for us. And so we sing together, man. Those who God sets free, they are free indeed. And there is something about the Spirit of God communing with the people when we're all saying the same thing. This is the same principle, but it's, it's true everywhere. Have you ever um, like heard a lot about a comedy um, and be like, man, I better check that out. But then you watched it by yourself, and you're like, man, I don't know what's so funny about this. I remember, I was, you know, the office was really growing, and everyone was talking about how funny it was. And uh, funny things are only good when they're watched with funny people. Like, if you watch funny things with the wrong people, it just messes everything up. Or if you watch funny things by yourself, it's just kind of awkward, because when you laugh, you, you're the only one laughing, and then you look around like, is it not funny? I don't know. And so, like, I remember the first time I watched The Office, I was kind of like, man, this is just awkward. You know, it's like things keep getting worse and worse, and you keep making the most awful mistakes, but then I watched it with funny people, and it was like a cardio ab workout. Like, it's so much more fun when you share it or, or, or meals. You know, like you can eat a good meal by yourself, and there's a level of enjoyment. Why is it so much greater when you share it with someone? Why is it so much greater? And I, I know right now, like, like they, there's some people who are like, man, no, I just want to be alone. I want to eat by myself. I want to check myself into a hotel all by myself. And some of you like, like, you're introverted, and I don't really understand all that. But you are, and that's what you want. Some of you, you're just moms. And you want five minutes without hearing mom, 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 mom. And I get that. You need that. But you, there's something when we share these things together, it is more complete. It is more real. And David is inviting us into his story to say, listen, if we magnify God together, there is more joy for us. You know, I mean, my, my dog even understands this. You know, Charlie won't eat all day. He'll have food, but he won't eat. And we'll get home, and he's probably starving. And he'll run in, and he'll get a bite of food. And then he'll run back to where we are and just look at us while he chews. The food falls out of his mouth. And then he's done with that one. And he'll run back in, get another bite, and then run and just look at us. Like, he wants to share a meal together. But we don't set him a place at the table. <laughs> David is inviting us to hear what God has done so that he might have more joy in the Lord. So that you might have more joy in the Lord. Or we could say more confidence or more trust or more hope. Why is it that when you're in a group and someone shares something on the heart level, like when you're sharing, you're like, man, if I share this, everyone's going to pull away from me. 
If they know like what I've done or, or what I'm struggling with, they're not going to respect me in the same way. They're going to lean back like, man, that guy's crazy. Why is it we fear that? But over and over in groups, what I see is when someone actually shares on the heart level, like, man, I don't understand what God's doing. This is rough. I keep messing up. I keep going back to this. When someone shares on that, what I see, like if I just step back and look at the group, what I see is everyone leans in. Everyone actually leans closer. And so David wants to share, and he wants to share to make his joy complete. He wants to share to increase our joy. He wants to share to increase his faith because he will go through difficult things again. He wants to share to increase our faith. And so there's this invitation, but there's also an intent. It's not just to share a story about anything, to highlight anything. It's an intent. And so look at it. You see these words like, I want to bless, I want to praise, I want to boast. Look at verse 1. It says, I will bless the Lord at all times. It can be translated every time. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. He wants to grow blessing and praise of God, not himself. Like he doesn't want to share a story to make himself the hero of the story. He says, man, I I want you to know what God did. That's why we don't get any details. That's why we don't get the details of like, man, I put my best crazy eyes on and it was great. He says, man, I was freaking out. I was terrified. I was imprisoned in the hometown of the guy I killed that led to the slaughter. Like, you can't just apologize for that. You're like, wow, king, a bit, a bit, a bit, oh, man, Abimelech. It's pretty close. It's actually, his name's Akish. But um, king, I was more surprised than anyone when I killed him with that rock. And then we slaughter your people. Sorry about that. I mean, you can't do that. He leaves those elements out. He goes in verse 2. He says, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. His intention is really clear. I want to bless God. I want to praise God. I want to boast and brag upon God. This week, I I read an article was pointed out to me. Um, And I I read it. It was in the Gospel Coalition, and it was called uh, Stop Photobombing Jesus. And for those who don't know, photobombing is when you, uh, there's a picture of something, but you jump in it to draw attention away from the something. And what the the author was writing was he was like, man, so many times, especially with this new form of social media, man, we're kind of photobombing Jesus. He says this, he says, there's a fine line between wanting God to use you for his glory and wanting everyone to know it. And like in reading this, like he's talking a lot about, I mean, if you preach, you need to hear this. I need to hear this. Like there's a fine line between wanting God and Jesus to be made made of and wanting people to know like, I'm really good at this. Like there's a fine line that becomes sinful that needs to be repented of. And it is evident in our lives in other areas. It's evident in our stories where we might reference God coming through, but we really want to magnify ourselves. It's evident in our social media content and our blogs, where we might talk about the reality of God doing something, but really it's kind of us center stage. Like there's a place where we really have to wrestle with this. Like, am I boasting in the Lord or am I boasting in what I've endured? And sometimes you're like, man, why would anyone do that? That's a crazy question because we want approval from people. Like, and so I'm just like in that, like you just need other people to monitor that for you. And it, it needs to be people who aren't like fanboys of you. Like it needs to be people who aren't like, for me, it needs to be people who are like, man, that was a great sermon. Like they're lying, okay? It needs to be people who actually will bring criticism. It needs to be people, if it's social media, it needs to be people who don't like your stuff all the time. People who know you, love you, trust you. But like there's this call. He could have been boastful about what he did, but those elements don't exist. And his intent was, I want to bless, praise, and boast upon the Lord. And so we see an invitation. We see an intent. We also see who this is for. Like, who needs to seek the Lord? Who needs to enter in the story and share the story? And it's those who have fear, shame, any type of lack, or troubles. Like, all of that. Look at verse verse 4. It says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. David feared. David was a fierce warrior and he feared. David's story involved uncertainty and fear. Like if you have fear, 
this story is to strengthen you and to invite you in. Verse 5, it says, Those who look upon him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. It enters into, like, when it says ashamed, it means that we struggle with shame. Like, there are things that, that we have done or things that we are prone to do. There are realities in our heart that we never want to have voice. And, like, we do everything we can to hide and escape shame. A book um, that we've recently read as a staff, it's called The Wounded Heart. It's, um, it's about sexual assault survivors and just the healing process but it relates to every i mean it relates to all kinds of shame and brokenness and it describes shame it describes shame and in one part it describes shame and the way that we try to avoid shame and i'm going to read it to you but i want to tell you a little about first it describes shame as a phenomenon of the eyes like i don't want people to see and know this i don't want god to see it and the problem is he sees everything And so then we have these defensive mechanisms to try to hide our shame. And we all have them. We're all trying to hide shame to some level. And so we have these defensive mechanisms. And he really singles in on two. He singles in on contempt of self and contempt of others. And so listen to what he says. He says, shame is a phenomenon of the eyes. The eyes usually drop and the shoulders slump. And when one feels shame. More than anything in the world, the shamed person wants to be invisible or small so that the focus will be removed. The hemorrhage of the soul stopped. How can the shamed person accomplish this? Somehow the eyes of the one who sees him must be deflected or destroyed. And there are two options. The shamed person can turn his eyes away from the penetrating gaze and focus on the element in his own being that is the cause of the shame, self-contempt. You know, in a, in a, in a way to try to beat them to the punch, you just kind of start to put insults upon you or to injure yourself itself to divert the eyes from the cause of your shame. Self-contempt. I can't believe I did that again. I hate myself. What's wrong with me? Or I literally hurt myself. Or, or he can attack his enemy's eyes directly with the poison of his hatred, blinding those eyes so their power is nullified. Contempt for others. You know, the, the book, it went on to describe, you know, um, extreme contempt to moderate contempt. And um, it was kind of scary. I have a lot of contempt. <laughs> I was like, oh, no. <laughs> But those people are idiots. I mean, oh no. But David, he dealt with shame. He's a hero of the Bible and he had shame and he didn't want to be put to shame. He wanted at times to avert the eyes, but he trusted enough. He said, man, God came through on this and I want to share what happened and I don't want to be put to shame. He dealt with fears. And so if you deal with fear, you're invited to participate. He dealt with shame. If you deal with shame, you are invited to participate. And then look at verse 6. It says, this poor man. Like, look, it says, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. And so he, he doesn't say, like, a poor man. He says, this poor man. I was in trouble. And so if you have lacking, like you lack self-control or you lack possession or you lack space or you lack whatever, like this is inviting you in. Like the gospel is for those who know that they lack. It's for those who know they don't bring enough. It's for those who know they come up short. And so David says, man, this poor man right here, This poor man found himself in the city of his enemies before his enemy king with the sword of their champion whom he killed. He lapped. And then it also just says, and gives this generic word in verse 6, where it says, This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. You know, that word, um, it's used to describe someone who's like caught up in a corner. Someone who's caught. No way of escape. Kind of the, the, the phrasing we might use between a rock and a hard place, but hemmed in. And so it's talking about people who feel trapped. You know, in verse 4, where it says, you know, it starts off, it says, I sought the Lord. Like, it's not the kind of seeking that means I'm looking for where God is. 
It's the kind of seeking that I'm looking to God to see what he thinks. Have you verbalized whatever your story is, wherever it is, God, this is what happened. This is how I feel about it. I need to know what you think about it. I need to know what you think. Because what what actually has already happened, you see, it happens real naturally. Like, you see, anytime, like, we live in this life, there's events that happen. Like, it happened. I can't change it. I try to forget it. I try to rethink it in a way where maybe I had control. But I can't change what happened, and it's affected me. And then I feel a certain way about it. And you can try to medicate your feelings. You can try to talk yourself out of your feelings. But you can't change how you feel about it. But then there's this thing (coughs) that's the interpretation of the event. And you've already actually done a lot of work there and you don't know it. You've already actually done a lot of accusational work against God of what he thinks about you or his intention for you. Or accusation against yourself of what you should have done. Why didn't you do it better? And what if we just told this story, sat before God and his people and just said, God, what do you think about it? You know what's healing? (coughs) Is when you know that whatever happened, God actually hates it. And that he loves you and that the cross proves that he came to do something about it. So David invites us, he tells us who this is for. And then he tells us what we can expect when we share my real story. When I share what really has happened, how I really felt about it. Like, God lifts your shame and encamps around you. Look at verse 5. Like, as we tell our story to God and to others, he lifts our shame. In verse 5, it says, Those who look to him are radiant, and their face shall never be ashamed. Like, the word radiant is kind of a word that's used often to describe, like, Um, a a father or a mother who has longed to see their child, uncertain about who they are, and then sees them well. Like their face lights up. And then it says, never be ashamed. I think this is telling uh, us that there's a magical law that is written into our soul that just works. In in, in the same way that there is, there's natural laws in the universe that gravity works, that it has a certain like law that always works in the same way upon everyone. Like you see people and they're able to jump higher than you and you wonder why gravity doesn't affect them the same way. It's actually not the law of gravity. It's different. But these natural laws that just work a certain way that we can count on, I think there's a Galatians 6 principle. It's a natural law that when we share our burdens with one another and we get up under and we hear people's story, I think whether you love Jesus or not, I think there's a natural law that just works. Like how many, how many times have you sat with someone and actually shared where you are, like the, the difficulty of your life, and you walked away. Nothing was different. Circumstances were the same. But you just felt lighter. See, I think what David is pushing in on is like how much more when we have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit who loves to connect us deeper with Jesus, who loves to intercede for us to make Jesus brighter. How much more with that? But this is just a natural principle. I I read a book. It it was a this was about a year ago. It was a counseling book, and it jumped into a lot of like uh, PTSD. And the author, who was not a Christian, just said, man, what we see over and over is people who have had trauma, and we've all experienced trauma, but people who've had extreme trauma, if they have someone who loves them and they just tell them the story, like, they do better. They just do better. It's not talking from a Christian perspective. It's just saying, we have observed this, that, you know, what happens, especially with, like, first responders or, or, you know, or with soldiers who've seen and participated, like, they were in horrible situations. They come back and they think, I can't talk to my spouse about this. I can't talk to my friends. They won't get it. And they may not understand exactly. But I think David is saying, no, no, share the story. And watch God magically start to lift shame. And some of that shame is not your shame. Listen to this. In the relational soul, 
um, Allender, he, or not Allender, uh, Ploss and Colfield, they describe it like this. They say, whatever your story is, our conviction is this. You are healed by God, and God is always listening with a loving ear. God cares about your story because God cares about you. God hears and delights in your story. God also hears the cry of your heart. Sharing your story with God does not mean painful, shameful memories. I'm sorry. Sharing your story with God does not mean painful, shameful memories will magically disappear, but God gets your story. He is a suffering God, and because he has suffered in the Son, our Trinitarian God offers you a way to his heart through your suffering. In your pain, God's sorrow holds you, comforts you, and over time heals you. It is so foolish that we try to lie to ourselves about our story. It is so foolish that we try to lie to others about our story. It is crazy foolish that we try to lie to God about our story who wasn't just watching who was there. David invites us in. David shares our intent. David says what we can expect, that we'll see this lifting. And he also gives us another promise in verse 7. As we share our story to God and to others, God encamps around us. Look at verse 7. It says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and deliver him. You know, anytime when the Old Testament talks about the angel of the Lord, and it's, it's capitalized, uh, most theologians, and, and I, I believe too, he's talking about the actual presence of God. And so David says, listen, as we share those who fear him and are delivered, you know, he delivers them. But not just that, God encamps around us when we get honest. And then the final element that I want to pull out of David's story, we see in verses 8 through 10. But he wants to answer the question, like, if that's who it's for, if we're invited in that, and, you know, if it's, I'm, I'm someone who has fear and shame, and I, I, I lack what I think I need, and so I'm invited in. He tells us what we can expect, almost this magical lifting of my, of my shame and this presence of God with me when I actually get to the bottom of it, and I actually just am honest about where I am and how I feel about it, and all those things. Like, these things are promised. And then it's like this, when do I get that? When can that be my life? And he says, after you do it. Look at what he says. He says, after you do it, he says, verse 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. This is picked up in the New Testament in Hebrews 6 and 1 Peter 2, where we just kind of want this idea where it's like, you can't just hear about it from others. You cannot be close to God on hearing about God being close to others. That can encourage you. It can be a part of it. You have to step in and say, I need that. And so you have to taste it for yourself. You have to see it for yourself. It says, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you saints. For those who fear him have no lack. And then it says, the young lion suffers want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. You know, when he says, when even the young lion you know, suffers what he's saying, even the apex predator that can destroy everything else around it, it suffers. But if you seek the Lord for refuge, if you enter in and you just start with the best of you know, of God, I need you to talk to me about this in my life. I need you to enter into this in my life. It says those people have no lack. It may not happen instantly, but the delusion of the dialogue and the interpretation that you have given for your suffering, it didn't happen instantly either. You have exercised it daily. And so David, he tells the story. David tells us a story to make God bigger in his life, to make God bigger in our life. And then David wants to teach us, and we're going to do this really, really fast. There's teaching here. 
He wants us to know some things. If we're going to step into this, if we're going to trust this spiritual principle that we find in Galatians 6, if we're going to trust this idea that, man, God actually wants us to verbalize these things to him and he wants to enter in. He wants to show where he was. He wants us to know how he thinks about it. He wants to heal us from this hurt. Listen to these things he wants us to know. So David teaches. He wants, he wants, to interp- he wants us to interpret the events of his story so we might have uh, the ability to interpret the events of, of our story. And so he just highlights a couple things. The first thing he highlights is in verse 15. He wants us to know that the righteous have God's eyes. And so verse 15, it says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. You are not overlooked. God sees you. God saw what happened. God saw that situation. God sees it. You're not overlooked. His eyes are upon you. He wants us to know in verse 15, it goes on, that the righteous have God's ears. It says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. God hears your story. God hears your doubt. God hears your cries and your pleas and your wonder. God hears all of that and he is present for it. But he doesn't just hear you. He heard you. You have God's eyes You have God's ears. He wants us to know in verse 17 that the righteous will suffer broken hearts. The righteous will suffer crushed spirits. The righteous will suffer many afflictions. Just look at the text with me. Verse 17, when the righteous cry out for help. And so now this is no longer directed for everyone. This is directed to the righteous those who love God, those who are right standing with God, those who are now called God's children, those who can call to God like he's their father, can cry at any time. Look, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. Verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Brokenhearted is describing the righteous. You can expect in this life to face a broken heart. God hasn't promised that that will never happen. It says, he saves the crushed in spirit. That's still modifying the righteous. God's children will face broken hearts and crushed spirits. You can expect to face smashed dreams. Verse 19, it says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. And he put the righteous in just to make sure we understand that God is not stepping into our lives to save us from all pain and anguish. He's stepping into our lives to to walk us through pain and anguish that he might turn us into something that we need to be turned into, but that we might make much of his name. That sometimes through our suffering, sometimes through our lack of faith, like when we're just honest about it, sometimes that is how God is magnified the greatest. And so many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the, Delor- the Lord delivers him out of them all. And so you have God's eyes, you have God's ears, you can expect a broken heart, a crushed spirit, you can expect afflictions that will come, but you can also expect this. The righteous will be delivered and will never suffer condemnation. Verse 17, it says, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them from all of their troubles. Like it wants to get real broad and it wants to say all that troubles you, God can deliver you. God can walk you through. It's not unknown to him. He doesn't like not know how to walk you through that. He has made promises, not that you would never face troubles, but he has made promises that you'll never face them alone. And he has given you the resources, oh, Christian, of the church that you might share. But we just want to share our stories of like past troubles that we walk through because we want to still be God of our lives. Like, man, I used to struggle with that, but not anymore. If that's all you share, you're not going to experience the healing of the Lord. At best, you'll experience the healing of your hands. And so all troubles. But it also says, verse 22, The Lord redeems the life of his servant. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. None will fall under condemnation. 
You know, when, we, um, when you see the word condemnation or condemned, what it really means is it means the last word that haunts your life. I mean, why is it when you like, are arguing, you just you want the last word? And so then both people want the last word. And so it goes a really long time. Because it, you know, evidence get, keeps getting brought up of why if you're not the problem, they're the problem. It's because we fear a haunting word laid over our lives, that it is the last word that then defines the rest of eternity for us. And when this says that you will not face, none who hope in him will face condemnation, it means the troubles or the enemies or the brokenness or the smashed dreams, they won't have the last word on your life. They don't have the power to have that. You are held in God's hand by his righteous strength. You are covered in the blood of Jesus. And so that Jesus has the last word. And do you know what his last word was? It is finished. Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. All that needed to be accomplished for you so you don't face condemnation was done right here in the act of what you saw before you. It is finished. You don't have to reshape your story and your past to present yourself in a light that is presentable so that others or God might like you more. It is finished. You don't have to put on an attitude of the happy camper in order to like somehow like Push your faith up so it's presentable. It is finished. You don't have to condemn yourself or others with violent measures to divert the eyes so people don't see the brokenness that's in you that haunts you with shame. It is finished. At the point of the cross, God's wrath fell upon Jesus so that we wouldn't have to see and experience the wrath of God. You know, I think some of the words that are really important to help us understand this are all found in the text. First, um, we see the word sought, and then tasted, and then the promise, no bones were broken. Look back in verse 20. Like In verse 20, David writes, he keeps all his bones, and not one of them is broken. All, the gospel writers picked up on this and attributed it directly to Jesus. In John 19, verse 36, it says, Thus to be fulfilled that none of Jesus' bones were broken. See, Jesus bore the weight of your shame, and he stood again so that we can stand now. It didn't break him. Jesus is strong enough for the weight of your story. The the other word I think helps us see is is when, when David says, I sought like we, we unpacked it, like, like David saw, not that he was trying to find God, David looked to God for the interpretation of what's going on. And here's the, Jesus sought God the Father perfectly his whole life. But at his death upon the cross, he lost the Father. He looked up to heavens and he couldn't see him because he lost relationship with Father. Jesus did this so that in my imperfect seeking. I might find God himself. Jesus sought perfectly and lost the Father so that through the power of the Holy Spirit in my imperfect seeking, I might find him. And then the last thing, taste. It's so peculiar to me that um, when we taste something, whether it's extremely good or extremely bad, we just want to share it with others. It's so peculiar. You'll eat something, you're like, oh, that's disgusting. You should try it. I mean, it's so peculiar to me. But also, like, when we eat at a great restaurant or we eat something, it's just good. Like, you know, when my wife and I, when we go out, like, man, we share so many plates together. Like, oh, you've got to try this. This is great. And she's like, you've got to try this. This is great. And she always orders things I'm scared to order, and it's so good. And so I'm like, man, that is good. I just kind of lean over, and I just kind of dig in, you know? We want to share the things that we taste. And that's why Proverbs, that, that, that's actually a beautiful reality. And it's a terrifying reality. See, it's beautiful because for the believer, if we tasted of forgiveness and grace, like evangelism shouldn't be hard. We just tell the story of it. 
Man, I was living for this and it wasn't working out. And I heard about Jesus and I heard that he had done something for me and I saw it in the lives of others. And so I just, out of desperation, I asked for it and it's real. You need to taste this. Or, or, or we get around couples that have age and they have a tenderness with one another. They're kind of flirty, like they make their kids uncomfortable. And you're just like, man, I hope when I'm old and awkward, I want to be flirty too. We say, I want to taste that. But it also works the opposite. We walk through something awful. We actually feel shame about it and everything about it hurt. And yet somehow we just believe, man, maybe if other people taste this with me, I won't have to drink all of it. So many things would just be eliminated if we just be honest. I worked with students, like youth and and college for so long. And like, I'm just convinced like seeing broken heart after broken heart of premarital sex and, and, and just brokenness, if people would just be honest, it would curve so much of it. If people would just be honest of what they actually tasted, of, of, of the girl who said, I gave so much to him and it was casual and he didn't care and I feel empty and broken and exposed. If people would just be honest, but we don't do it. Out of unconscious motivation, we just believe, man, if we can get enough people to drink of this, I won't have to drink all of it. And that's where the cup of wrath is so important in the New and Old Testament. The cup of God's wrath is found through every part of biblical literature, and it's found, especially in the New Testament, that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath, so we could taste something different. Jesus tasted the heavenly thrones. He lived with God from eternity past, and he left them to taste the brokenness of this world, death upon the cross, and the wrath of God, so that we could taste something different. Don't you want something different? This is the hope of the gospel. Jesus, his bones weren't broken because he carried the weight of shame and brokenness and death. He stood again. He died, but he stood again. He sought the Lord perfectly. Um, and as death, he lost that which he sought so that we could find that which we seek. And he tasted the heavenly splendors and he left it to come taste our brokenness and death for us. Jesus tasted disappointment, betrayal, His heart was broken. His hopes were even crushed, but the grave couldn't hold him. What are you scared to share to God and to others? Let me pray for us. Father, um, we, um, man, we see David. Real simply, he comes to tell his story, and then he tells us what we can expect. And Lord, some of these promises seem too grand. They seem too lofty. It has to be more complicated than that. And I I don't know if that's true. Lord, what if sharing our story with you and with God's people, what if that is a natural law like gravity? What if that is a way that the lies that we have put upon your character and the lies that we have put upon our worth, what if it's a way that they're exposed that we can actually see what's true? God, Lord, I pray that you give us courage to trust the promises that we would share. And so, Father, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit indwelling in our hearts, like if there is something that we're just scared to speak, Lord, I pray that you give us courage to speak it, that we would believe that those things or that idea or that event or the words that were spoken because I failed at this or that or my motivation, those things don't have the last word. Jesus has the last word, and he said it is finished, and it is picked up in Romans 8.1. There is now no, therefore no condemnation for those who love Christ Jesus. Father, I pray you unpack those things for us. God, Lord, we love you, and Lord, that you would unpack some of those things, even as we just walk forward in communion. With your heads down, eyes closed, I just want to explain communion. 
Um, it is uh, awfully hectic in this space, and it's going to be even more hectic in this space in the dark. But the way we take communion is we uh, walk down the two side aisles. Um, it works best if we all stay to the right. And we walk down and we grab a piece of bread and we take the piece of bread and we dip it into the wine or the grape juice. And it just points us to remember what Jesus did on the cross for us. His body was beaten and broken. Although no bone was broken, his body was broken down. And then his blood was poured out. And that symbolizes in the grape juice or, or the wine. And so the wine is in the stoneware, the grape juice in the glassware. And we dip it in and we remember that this is what brought us into covenant with him. Not our works, but his works. And then you can return back to your seat. And so that's one motion. The other motion that is applicable uh, to uh, people who are unsure about Jesus or people who are just under special conviction from Jesus. And that's just to stay where you are and just pray. If you're unsure about Jesus, we'll have some prayers up on the screen just to help give you guidance of what we believe. But there's another motion, and that might just be, I just need prayer. And it might just be as simple as this, that you go, you find someone with a prayer tag, they'll be in the back, and they can move to the hallway uh, to pray with you, where you just say, I am struggling with, you fill in the blank, and you let them pray. They don't need all the information, but you need to be courageous to give a little bit of information and just let them pray. And they are going to pray that the character and goodness of God would be evident to you and that he would be known. And you would know where God was and what he thinks about it. And they're going to pray that you might be healed. God, Lord, we trust in you. We are spiritual people, and we need your promises to survive this spiritual world. Um, In Jesus' name, amen. Come when you're ready.